welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Recently, a journalist from the Washington Post did some analysis on the effectiveness of President Trump's promised wall to stop drugs from coming into the U.S. across our border with Mexico. It turns out, if the wall gets built, it may not keep drug smugglers from bringing illicit drugs into the country after all. Here to talk about U.S. President Trump's wall is the Washington Post reporter Nicole Lewis, who's done an outstanding piece on this called President Trump's Claim, that a wall will stop much of the drugs from pouring into this country. So, Nicole, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Okay. So, candidate Trump made a lot of statements during his campaign, and you've cited a number of them in, uh, in your piece there, such as uh, the first one there, uh, just to add on, tremendous drugs pouring into the United States at levels that nobody has ever seen before. This has happened over the last three to four years in particular, and the wall will stop much of the drugs from pouring into this country and poisoning our youth. We need the wall. It is imperative. So let's start there. How true is that? (laughs) So in short, um, well, it's sort of, there are two parts. He's right on the one hand. A lot of the drugs come into this country through our um, border with Mexico but a wall just won't stop them flat out wrong. And why is that? It's because most of the drugs that come in are trafficked. They, they make their way right in through legal points of entry. So drug smugglers fill up their cars, their trucks um, with these illicit substances, with heroin, with marijuana, and they drive them right through the border. Um, and that's because, you know, our borders are really dealing with <laughs> getting a, a tons of traffic, you know, over the checkpoint every day. And it's just impossible. It's so difficult to be able to screen out every single um, drug smuggling, drug smuggler. And additionally, you know, the the second most trafficked uh, way that drugs come in are through drug tunnels. And those tunnels go, you know, for hundreds of miles through the ground, sometimes as deep as 70 feet beneath the surface, uh, right across the border. And they start often in one house in Mexico and wind up in one house. In, um, on the U.S. side of the border. And so, you know, a wall, no matter truly how deep it goes, and the wall is only estimated to be about six feet beneath the surface, 
just won't stop um, those two methods. And increasingly, um, the, the DEA is showing that drug smugglers are using drones to fly drugs over the border as well. And so, you know, no matter how high you go, you can't stop a drone from getting across um, and landing, you know, inside of the United States. So they put out RFPs already on this thing. Is that right? According to your article, there's a couple of different versions of this in their RFPs. And these walls would be between 18 and 30 foot high. And as you said, six foot below the surface. So that's right. This isn't going to stop anybody? <laughs> no. So the Department of Homeland Security is already hard at work um, trying to commission builders to build the wall. And they you know, they asked for two prototypes. One is the sort of typical wall that we've been hearing Trump talk a lot about. So a concrete wall, a concrete slab wall. Um, and then the second is more of a see-through wall that's 18 to 30 feet high and, and six feet below the surface. And again, you know, it just, it's it, the very fact, and this is, this is not me saying this, this is a, the DEA um, who releases a report on drug threats you know, they're saying that the majority of drugs just come right through legal ports. And so this wall is slated to be in the stretch of the border where um, where it's sort of right now there's a lot of um, wildlife refugees, refuges, and it's sort of just barren terrain. There's a river, sort of mountainous and rocky. And so there's just no evidence that we have that drugs are being trafficked across and through these areas. Um, so again, you know, one version of the wall won't do it, and a see-through version won't do it either. Um, and that's just because it's just not how the drugs are coming into the country. So it was projected that the cost of the wall uh, by tr the Trump administration would be uh, somewhere between 8 to $12 billion, And that, of course, would be paid for by the Mexican government. So let's fact check on that. What's reality? <laughs> yeah. So, right. So initial estimates were between 8 and $12 billion. Right now... Um, well, Trump's budget suggested $2.6 billion, and then that number was revised to $1.6 billion. Um, but research shows that it would cost about $25 billion um, in order to construct the wall that Trump has described. And so this is a wall that's 30 to 45 feet high, primarily made out of concrete. Um, and then an internal Department of Homeland Security estimate said that it would cost $21.6 billion. So, you know... The current amount that's allotted for this project, $1.6 billion, just really pales in comparison to what um, folks think it will actually cost to build something like this. So now I want to take a step back for just a second and talk a little bit more about the different ways that people, the illicit drug smuggling is taking place. You mentioned drones. You mentioned, mentioned the tunnels. Let's talk a little bit about that as well as, I suppose, cars that make it through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the um, DEA, as of March 16th, uh, has discovered 224 tunnels since 1990. Um, most of those tunnels are primarily under the ground in Arizona and California. And I think one interesting thing that I didn't include in my article was that the DEA attributes a lot of these tunnels to the Sinaloa cartel, which most people, I think, may be very familiar with um, El Chapo, this figure, El Chapo Guzman. And, you know, he was basically freed from jail or broke out of jail in 2015 through an elaborately built tunnel. Um, and so it just goes to show you that 
you know, there's there's really no limit to the amount of ingenuity and um, sort of lengths that drug smugglers will go to figure out how to burrow under the ground, you know, to reinforce these tunnels with wooden beams, to um, rig them with lights and air ducts. Um, so again, a wall, if it's slated to go six feet beneath the surface, just won't have any impact on these tunnels that can be up to 70 feet below the ground. And then, you know, additionally, we've got um, drugs coming in, you know, right through the border of uh, Texas and the United States just being driven over. And so a lot of times um, drug smugglers will, you know, have sort of false bottoms to the cars or um, co-mingle the drugs alongside other legitimate goods um, so that when the truck is inspected, you know, everything kind of looks up to code, um, but you've got, you know, heroin sort of stashed in there. And oftentimes, like the DEA is reporting that um, drug smugglers will sometimes dissolve methamphetamines or cocaine in other innocuous liquids and just bottle them up, take them right over. Um, so that's, you know, for those main reasons, that's why a, a wall just won't have any impact on the, the methods that we currently know um, through which drugs are coming into the country. Can you give us a little bit more detail on how the drone situation works, how they bring them in with drone? I, I get what a drone is and everything, but I mean, yeah. a drone's pretty small, right? I mean, they're not <laughs> huge and, and they would have to be small to, to, you know, not go through and not detect it, one would think. So share with us that process. Sure. Yeah, so right, exactly. So the drones that the drone technology we have right now is, is pretty small, pretty limited. And so it's not a primary way that drugs are being smuggled, again, according to the DEA. Um, you know, it's sort of small amounts of drugs that are put on a drone where someone can basically fly it, you know, from the safety of their home or, <laughs> you know, just they don't have to put themselves on the line in any way. And they can fly the drone right across the border and land it wherever they, you know, they needed to go, presumably to a, um, what we call a stash house on the U.S. side, so a place from which these drugs would wind up being distributed. Um, but it's important to note that the DEA says as drone technology changes, um, you know, drones may become uh, more widely used. So if they can get bigger and load up with more drugs, um, it's possible that they could, you know, see... Um, see more drone use, more drone activity. Sure. And of course, fentanyl and carfentanyl, that takes up much, much less space and it's much lighter to transport. And, and That's a really, really good point. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, exactly like you said, fentanyl, which is um, sort of a big, um, a big threat right now in, in the opioid crisis, you know, it does not take millions of pounds of fentanyl to... Um, uh, I mean, it, you just don't need to traffic it at that level. And so drones could be a very effective way that fentanyl comes in. Um, however, we do know, again, according to the DEA, that fentanyl primarily um, is purchased on the dark web and mostly from China and then sort of shipped via the, our mail system into the country. And so that's, you know, another sort of avenue that um, they're trying to crack down on as well. Yeah. So before we went on the air, you talked about how the wall is kind of uh, an easy sell, call it, um, you know, versus really digging in and tackling the challenges, the many faceted challenges associated with the opioid epidemic. Let's speak to that just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 
anyone who is, has access to the Internet or who has talked to a friend who has access to the Internet has probably heard about this wall, right? So it's just been a big selling point of the Trump campaign and of the Trump presidency. And so a wall, again, it's an easy sell because it's very clear. Did the wall get built or did it not? It's a physical thing that we can all kind of point to. And I think it allows Trump to say, well, if it, I tried to get this wall done and if it didn't happen, it's because Congress didn't want to fund it. And so you have someone, you have a group of people that can be blamed. Um, and without the sort of facts being laid out, it's, you know, it's hard to know, you know, it might sound like a great solution um, to this crisis because, again, drugs are coming in from Mexico. It's just not through the method that, that Trump um, is suggesting. And so it seems like, oh, what a good solution. Um, but it will have, you know, virtually no impact on um, the opioid crisis, um, a crisis that's extremely complex. Um, and that the roots of it, I mean, in, in truth, really started in the American healthcare system with the overprescribing of um, prescription painkillers. Sure. So I want to um, talk for just a minute about another um, article that you did. You uh, spent some time on Staten Island studying the opioid epidemic there and did some work. Tell us just a little bit about that and what you learned from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I worked on a podcast um, uh, entitled The Fix that did a deep dive into the opioid epidemic in New York City. And I was primarily on Staten Island um, reporting with um, you know, interviewing families and talking to people currently in treatment or people who had lost loved ones, um, as well as a few um, uh, physicians, a few doctors who've been working to try and um, curb the crisis. And I think, you know, something that really struck me while I was out there um, was just how much of a, just a, a shared or a generational issue substance abuse is, um, and that it seemed as if um, that because this crisis is so large, because so many lives have been lost and affected, it's sort of bringing that conversation of substance abuse out into the open and into, you know, onto the surface. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's something, if you can say that there's one sort of bright side or upside or something that, you know, that we've gained here, it's, it's in my mind, it's probably that, um, that people are now able to kind of to talk about substance use, to talk about, um, to talk about addiction. You know, we're asking ourselves, is this a disease? Is this a criminal justice issue? Is this a public health issue? There's just some great um, questions, I think, that are being asked um, that hopefully, you know, we will have sorted out and get answered. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of, you know, really positive work happening there. Kind of brought it out of the closet and got people talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. A good thing, no doubt. So back to your article, you conclude your article. I love the way that you concluded it, in fact. You uh, end it by rating President Trump on the Pinocchio scale. So tell us a little bit about the Pinocchio scale. That's right. So if folks are familiar with um, the sort of blog that I write for with the Washington Post, it's called Fact Checker. And one thing we do anytime we fact check a claim is we assign Pinocchios. Um, and so, you know, we gave Trump four Pinocchios for this, which is the max that he can earn. Um, and so basically that means, you know, he's, you know, he's made these claims. The wall will help with the drug crisis. It'll stop the drugs. And they're just not based in any kind of reality. 
Um, again, the White House, you know, they haven't, they didn't respond to say, here's the study or here's this. But as far as we can tell, you know, we looked at the DEA report, we sort of run the numbers, and there's just no evidence to support his claim. And so we said, this is totally for Pinocchio. So how does he pivot and move on from this? What happens next? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, one thing I noted in, in the piece was that Trump actually commissioned a, um, a task force, so to speak, on the opioid crisis. Um, and so they were charged basically with, um, you know, presenting to him a sort of path forward for, for how to address this crisis in our country. And um, they laid out their points. They, you know, came back with an interim report um, in July. And, you know, I've dug into this report a little bit and, and it, it, it seems like they've really done their homework. And so, you know, they're asking the president to um, do things like, address um, the over-prescribing of prescription painkillers and focus on retraining doctors or to address, um, help um, the Department of Homeland Security and Customs, you know, develop sensors that can detect fentanyl um, coming in through our mail system. So they're really trying to create a strategy that, um, you know, that's dealing with the crisis as, as we know it's, it's un, un, you know, unfolding. Um, so I think he can pivot by taking his, the advice of the commission that he's put together. You know, they've done this hard work um, to try and come up with a solution or a set of solutions. And I think it, it seems like a sort of natural, very logical uh, thing to do to, to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I hear you, I'm ready, and work with them uh, to come up, you know, with a functional plan. So. Well, Nicole, I really like the, your work there. That's a, a great piece you did on the wall. So uh, thank you for spending some time with us today to share some insights from your great writing. No problem. Thanks so much. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and the, you know, its potential impact that the wall could have to protect our country from <laughs> illicit drug smuggling? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think the big takeaway for me is that, um, that, you know, I know as someone who's been covering this, that people are really desperate for solutions. Um, so many lives have been lost. And at times and in places, it can feel like no one is doing anything um, to help. I can assure you, though, that the wall is not the answer. It just does not address both the complexity and the reality of this crisis. And so um, I would just encourage people, you know, to keep that in mind. As Trump says, the wall just you know, you know that it's, it is um, not going to have the impact that he's trying to, to, to sell um, and to, you know, start thinking about what $1.6 billion, um, the amount of money that's slated to start this um, construction on the wall could actually do. Um, so how could it impact treatment? How could it impact, um, you know, um, training and advocacy and all the kinds of um, complex sort of needs and services that, that, you know, the communities are sort of um, lacking or asking for. Um, so that, that, those are my final thoughts. Once again, thank you, Nicole. We've been visiting today with Nicole Lewis, reporter for the Washington Post and fact checker. And she has done a thorough job of checking the facts on President's claim that the wall will stop much of the drugs from pouring into this country. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, 
places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.